0: What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a great episode for you today with Arpon Basu. He is the editor in chief of the Athletic Montreal and Athletique Montreal, covering the Montreal Canadiens. In this episode, I chat with Arpon about covering the strange Stanley Cup playoffs, the possibility of covering an all Canadian division in the upcoming season. As well as his sports media career, working for NHL.com, moving over to The Athletic, the challenges of working for a digital operation early on that's now become entrenched into sports media. And then we end off with a conversation about his work as the inclusion co-chair of the Professional Hockey Writers Association and his efforts to increase diversity. In uh, hockey media and hockey coverage. So it's a really great conversation with Arpan Basu on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. If you have not yet subscribed to the pod, you can through YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to today's episode with Arpan Basu on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Arpan Basu. Arpan is the editor-in-chief of The Athletic Montreal and Athletique Montreal. He previously worked for the NHL for six years as a managing editor for LNH.com and a contributing writer for NHL.com. He joins me on the Sports Chronicles podcast. Arpan, thanks so much for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Likewise, and, and we'll get into we'll get into your career in, in just a bit. But as we're recording this episode now, still no official word on when the NHL season is going to start. Obviously, Commissioner Gary Bettman wants January first, but the big rumor upon, of course, is an all Canadian division. I just want your thoughts, just as mm. a journalist, just how exciting that possibility can be. Covering that, uh, covering that all Canadian division
1: yeah i think it would be great um you know it would uh it would perhaps stoke some some rivalries you know that it's it's unfortunate i feel for the people in western canada the canadians and the maple leafs both draw so well in western canada um and they only get them once a year you know so if this were to happen it would be god knows how the schedule would work but it would be you know 12 15 times i don't know how many times it would be but uh, so that would be exciting, and it would be cool to see the atmosphere in those buildings and how it would change uh, if it wasn't just one game, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, the lead, the Canadians show up, and it's same, the same for the Leafs. but the Canadians will show up in in Calgary, and there'll be, like, you know, 6,000 Canadians fans or whatever, but if it's, you know, that's one game a year. If it were 12 games, uh, you know, I think that split would be a little different and probably the Calgary fans could take over their their own building again. Um, and I'm also most intrigued by uh, the whole baseball-style schedule that seems to be floating around. Um, as a reporter, that would be really, really interesting because they would almost be like mini-playoff series uh, throughout the season, like basically mini two- or three-game playoff series. You'd have some animosity. You'd have some storylines that would develop. The stuff we see in the playoffs, but in the regular season, I think that would be really interesting. And, it, and I think it's something the NHL should actually consider uh, further from this this pandemic, just you know, it just makes sense in terms of uh, their carbon footprint, travel costs, you know, everything about it makes a lot of sense. And it, I, I just hope that they see, they take this as sort of a test case and see how compelling these mini series are, if indeed that's what they do. Uh, Cause I think it would be really cool. Like, you know, in, in the middle of the, you know, at the beginning of the season, or in the middle of the season, suddenly like in, in the first game, there's like, let's say a fight between two guys. And then they have to play again two nights later and, and all the repercussions of that, that we only see in the playoffs. Um, I think it would be cool to experiment with trying to recreate a little bit of that in the regular season.
0: I definitely agree. And, and I think also it could even, I mean, I obviously Leafs Canadians is a, is a rivalry that will never grow old, but I think it could even strengthen that rivalry. I mean, cause I mean, they haven't met in the playoffs for so many years yeah it's
1: I, not really a rivalry anymore no I
0: mean and, and, and it's I actually, like
1: an event yeah it's an event more than a rivalry yeah. well that's what it's I've not always really a rivalry
0: yeah I mean I've always sort of said that to, to people that you know my you know my parents who are hockey fans or any of my you know friends colleagues like you mean my dad grew up in you know the Leafs Canadians back in the 60s when it was an actual rivalry when they were competing for a Stanley Cup and I just sort of want that rivalry to be reignited again because it just hasn't been uh, hasn't been there the last uh, few few years.
1: Yeah, and I think this can maybe create that a little bit. And, um, you know, I mean, Leafs, Leafs Habs games are always heated and, and every player on either team understands the importance of them. They're always on Hockey Night in Canada and most players get up for any game on Hockey Night in Canada anyhow. But, if, I mean, if it's a true national game, uh, you know, usually the country is split between the Leafs and the Canadians on Saturday night, so that you know, kind of unites the country into one game, and, and everyone understands the stage that they're on. But you know, the level of animosity between the two franchises is pretty minimal. I mean, other other than the fact that they they face each other on these on this national stage, uh, you know, five or six times a year. So it's uh, yeah, I think, and you know, I mean, Calgary Edmonton playing you know twelve or thirteen times, uh, Vancouver calgary with all the canucks who've signed with the flames of the offseason like there's lots of possibilities and back in the day you know ottawa montreal was a pretty good simmering rivalry for a little while there so um i think there's a lot of possibilities and listen it's it's obviously it's all predicated on on necessity right the canadian border with the us is not going to open anytime soon if they want to play hockey they need to make some practical decisions this is is just seems like you know it seems like it would be a nice byproduct of what'll be a very unfortunate situation in the sense that uh for the nhl to have a season this is probably something that they just in practical terms just has to do uh it's just a nice bonus that it'd be super cool <laughs> that yeah. we, it'll be it'll, it'll be just this fun one season it'll make this season a lot more fun i feel um you know aside from the fact that it's going to bring uh, you know, assuming that they can ever get it off the ground, it'll bring a very a much-needed distraction to a lot of people who have been dealing with a lot of things um, in their lives over the last six months and probably for the next six months um, that haven't been a whole lot of fun. So, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, the importance of getting this NHL season off the ground I think lies in that, uh, giving people a bit of joy, um, like we saw in the playoffs. I think everyone got into it, and it was a welcome distraction for a lot of people um and on top of that if we could start experimenting with some new formats and some new some new gimmicks that the NHL can maybe incorporate long term then why not then let's let's get a, another positive out of this
0: speaking of the playoffs you had the chance to cover the the Stanley Cup playoffs in the bubble I mean you obviously saw the Montreal Canadiens in Toronto and then you and your colleague uh, Thomas Durant covered the, the remainder in uh, Edmonton I'm just curious as a uh, as a reporter and a journalist who's probably, you know, who's done a lot and, and done a lot throughout your career, what was that challenge like mm-hmm. for you to be able to report on this sort of once-in-a-lifetime unprecedented event?
1: Uh, well, actually, I'm just going to I actually didn't go to Toronto, so that's why I got, okay. like, I got the taste of both. I got a taste of both things, of both ways of doing it. So I covered the Canadians from home because, you know, we didn't see a benefit to me being there for, um, in terms of availability and everything, we had a lot of people and we have a lot of people in Toronto at the athletic, obviously. So all the, all the kind of side stuff, you know, about the atmosphere and everything. So, so that was a challenge. That was the first time I'd ever covered my team virtually like through zoom calls. And so you had to really look for, uh, you had to think really hard on your angle every night and try and really sort of think outside the box and think bigger picture. And so that was tough. Cause I, I, you know I do a lot a lot of my writing off games and off practices is based on you know it's based on stuff I get in the room and it's based on conversations I have with guys usually off to the side or by myself where I try as much as I can. So that was different. And then um you know they asked me to go to Edmonton. Thomas was in Edmonton from day one from mm-hmm. exhibition games to the very end. The guy was a machine. <laughs> uh so at some point he was gonna like he was gonna die. You know <laughs> yeah. he needed help. So um so I I got flown in and that was interesting. Getting on a plane was interesting. Mm. Um, And being, just being in the bubble and not even in the bubble. Like we, we, we like to refer to ourselves as bubble adjacent in Edmonton in the sense that we were in the building, uh, but we were not allowed anywhere except for the press level, which was not the regular press level, but it was basically the, the second, the second level concourse. Um, And they had us all set up in seats, you know, properly distanced and we had to wear masks and, but you know, the f- the first game I saw um, was pretty wild. I was really excited to see a live hockey game. And Thomas had been there for months, and he was burnt out. He is, he dealt with the Canucks run up to that point, mm. uh, and he's you know obviously normally our Canucks beat writer, so he was exhausted. And this was all old to him. And I show up, and I'm like, oh my god, live hockey! This is amazing. <laughs> I'm loving this. Uh, so, you know, he finally gave him a little, he said he gave him a little boost of energy because he, he re, you know, he remembered that, you know, this is, we're actually one of the privileged few who get to watch this live. And, um, you know, it, it's funny, it didn't take that long to get used to it. I would say like three or four games in and you're pretty much used to it. Like it's obviously the, the, the one thing that jumps out immediately is the fact that you can hear a lot of what's going on on the ice, especially with like post whistle scrums and stuff like that. And guys kind of barking at each other back and forth. Mm. Um, and and but it became normal really quickly. I was surprised at how how normal it felt uh and how soon it felt that normal. You know, and when you talk to the players and the coaches, like, you know, any question they got about being in an empty arena, uh, you know, I wrote a story on each of the conference championship trophies being presented in an empty rink, the cup being presented in an empty rink, and every question they got on it, they're like we didn't even notice it was empty. Like mm-hmm. they've not, they they totally blocked it out. And I get it, cause I'd say a week into it, that's how I felt watching these games. It just felt normal all of a sudden, cause with the product on the ice was the same. Mm-hmm. The only thing missing was the crowd noise. And so, but I gotta say, I'm 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 looking forward to the day where we can get that crowd noise back again. Mm. <laughs> that, that would, it really adds an element uh, that was missing during those playoffs for sure. I mean, the the noise and the atmosphere and the the homeless, like the ice intimidation factor in the playoffs was really something that was lacking.
0: Yeah. And like, you know, you mentioned just how, you know, obviously, you know, you get used to the zoom press conferences, but in talking with other reporters who've, you know, covered different sports and bubbles and, and, you know, using zoom as, as the vehicle to try to help their stories. I mean, I think they've all sort of admitted just that, you know, you missing that one-on-one interaction with players or coaches and getting a player walking off the podium or, or in, in the in the dressing room can really hinder the storytelling process. Did, did you feel that, or did you think that the relationships that you've built throughout your career it, it assisted you in a way to, to, to be able to tell stories in this uh, environment? Uh,
1: well, yes. It, yes. I mean, my experience assisted me in storytelling because, you know, I was... Uh, i'm not I'm generally not as reliant on quotes to write my stories in general. Mm. So it's not, you know, but having said that, I do rely on conversations with with players. Um, you know, less so coaches, you know, it's very rare that I'll get Claude Julian by himself. Uh, you know, he is always in a press conference setting, but In the dressing room, you know, I tend to kind of just float around and hover towards guys who are by themselves and and sort of get their insights and talk, have a conversation more so than an interview. It's it's how I like to do things. So so that was obviously taken away. And the guys on the team that I had relationships with or who are like relatively friendly with me, like it's hard to joke around on Zoom. They couldn't even see me, you know, like I mean, I could see them, but we were just like this voice of God coming down in this room, you know, and so it's like. It's kind of awkward and it didn't really make for you know it was hard to like ask nuanced questions like if you want to ask a difficult question it was hard to lead into it and and soften it a little bit so that it doesn't come off as being just very abrupt and and harsh so there's a way to do that when you're in person with someone and you're by themselves and you can say listen you know i understand all the factors that go into it but you messed up on this shift and it wound up with a goal against what happened there kind of thing you know it's, it's a lot easier to do that face-to-face where the guy knows you're not out to get him. You're just reporting on what happened, and that's what happened. And, and most guys are pretty good with that. So I'm a guy who tries to avoid scrums in the room mm. uh, in normal times. And so the Zoom thing was just one long scrum mm. for months. So uh, it made it more difficult, but it definitely, I thought I found it interesting as a, as a thought experiment and as a writing challenge and, and, and as a way to develop it as a writer. Like I thought... I thought I got better as a writer over the course of that period. Like I really do Um, forced me to think in different ways. It forced me to, you know, not take the low hanging fruit, like try and try and really dig deep into something that everyone's writing about so that you can come up with something that's a little bit different or a little bit better. So I, I, I actually valued that whole experience. I think I improved as a writer.
0: I want to follow up on your point about avoiding scrums, because I find that very interesting because I think for a lot of, young journalists who get assigned to a team for the first time to beat i mean they just you know they're 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 getting used to that whole process and you know i remember my first press conference i remember my first scrum and it's like you know asking that first question you know was was nerve-wracking but exciting at the same time but i feel like the experienced journalists are the ones like yourself that sort of after a while say to themselves well the scrum, the press conference, it doesn't really provide the, the the real important, impactful quote to necessarily tell a compelling story. Do, do, you, do, you, do you agree with that? Like that, you know, for you, that, that some of your best stories like were away from the cameras and just talking with people and having a, you know, a natural conversation?
1: I mean, I do. I definitely do agree with that. But that's a stage that I've reached in my career. And I don't think... Mm. You know what that requires. There's there's a few things that you can gain from from being in scrums and and just a. You need to listen and you need to hear. You need to find out what the what makes these guys tick. And and you know every hockey player or every professional athlete is different, but there's a certain way that they there are certain patterns of behavior that are common to many of them that you need to observe how they respond to different different questions, how questions are worded and how it's going to make them react and what have you there. There's a lot of behavioral observation that needs to be done before you can feel comfortable enough to sit down next to a guy and have a conversation with him. You know, I mean, that's really, you know, the first challenge for, as a young reporter for myself, uh, you know, the first time I walked into the Canadians dressing room, I was 24 years old. I was You know, just at a just out of university, just at a journalism school. And I couldn't believe I was already in the Canadian's dressing room. Like, this was like three or four months after I graduated. And so, so it was intimidating. And I was, I was, you know, I was, I was interviewing Saku Koivu. Saku (laughs) Koivu was a guy who I loved watching to like watch play. You know, like these are all guys that I watched. Now all of a sudden I'm this professional journalist and I have to treat them objectively. And all these, there's all these rules and this code of conduct. So you got to learn you got to learn, you got to listen, you know? Like, so I spent like probably the two years, first two years of my career, just doing a lot of listening Mm. and like, just figuring out sort of the ebbs and flows of a dressing room and how things work and how guys respond. And eventually uh, after a while I learned, and and that's okay, first of all, like, let's just, let's just be clear. Like, it's okay to just shut up and listen, you know? Mm. Like, I, I feel like sometimes that gets lost and people are really eager to prove how much they know. And sometimes it's okay to admit that you don't know everything and that the people who are doing, who've done the job for a long time, know a fair amount and that uh, you can learn from them. So that's what I chose. That's the way I chose to go. And eventually you get to a comfort level and also you reach a status in your own career or your job where you don't have to cover that day's news. Mm. Because if you have to cover that day's news, then it's hard to miss a scrum. You know, like if Carrie Price has a knee injury, and he's talking, well, you gotta be in that scrum, right? Or, or if, you know, if it's something less serious, but whatever, if you have to cover the news of the day, there's a lot of people covering the news of the day. You gotta be in there. But if you get, if, you, if you're at a point where you can register, just, you're just going to write a feature or you're going to write something different or whatever, then that's the perfect opportunity when everyone's at one guy, everyone's covering the news of the day, every other guy in the room is free. So you can go to pick, take your pick and just grab and go sit with someone and, and talk to them obviously who knows what the setting is going to be in dressing rooms coming out of this but pre-covid that's what i would do scrum would form around one person and i would go in the opposite direction mm. and then when that scrum left i would go talk to that person mm.
0: no that's really that's really good advice and i think for of young journalists sometimes they they want to go to the big story, the big player, and, and sometimes the best story is the one that, you know, like you said, isn't surrounded by all the cameras on uh, a given day in the, in the locker room. But you mentioned now I mean, you're in your mid-20s, you, you know, you, you, you get, you know, launched into covering the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, this isn't like covering, you know, a team in Everett or, or Brandon, Manitoba, no offense to them, but I mean, this is the Montreal Canadiens. It's, it's, it's a big market yeah. in the NHL. When did you start to sort of, I guess, feel comfortable in, in, in being, you know, covering a, a big market team like that? And, and how did you, you know, when did you begin to, you know, how did you stand out from a crowd of people and it with so much experience and, and media coverage? Uh,
1: when did I feel comfortable? I don't know. That's a good question. It it took years. Mm. It took years to feel fully comfortable. Like, I wasn't, you know, let's be clear. I wasn't, like, full-time covering the Canadians. I was a freelancer. I was a stringer for Canadian press, so I just covered their games. Mm. I didn't really go to their practices, so I couldn't really develop relationships with the guys. They only saw me after games. Uh, I did stand out as a non-white male. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that guys tended to remember my face for that reason. Uh, But really, I wasn't able to stand out as a journalist until uh, I started writing my own blog. You know, like I was, I had a full season accreditation with Canadian press, which I only used to go to games. And I decided at one point, when was that? 2008, I think, or 2007, somewhere around there. So seven or eight years into my career, um, I decided to start writing this blog. And that's where I can write what I thought about the team, opinion, and all this stuff that I couldn't do at CP. At CP, I was writing pretty straightforward stories and the odd feature here and there um so writing that blog and and really developing my voice as like a columnist as an opinion writer as an analyst um was really my way of of differentiating myself and so i did that for free like i don't suggest anyone work for free Mm. (laughs) never do that but at the time i was kind of stuck in a dead end and i was sort of i was spinning my wheels a little bit in my career and I needed something to give it a jump start. So, you know, I would finish my work with CP and then after that, after I'd filed, I would, I would write my blog and it, you know, it gained a decent following and people started reading it and it got like, you know, it got my name out there and eventually it sort of led to another job another job. And, and so, yeah, I stopped writing it the day I got hired by the NHL basically.
0: So, You get hired by the NHL. Obviously, that's a big step forward in your career. What Mm -hmm. did you learn from all those years at the NHL? And what were some of the inherent challenges in your role? Because I would imagine you may have not been able to go as deep or as far on certain topics because of the fact that you were working for the NHL, if that makes sense.
1: No, it makes total sense, and it's it's you know it's obvious. I don't think it's quite as restrictive as people assume it to be. Okay, uh, but obviously there were some things that that we couldn't really touch on. You know, they they discouraged writing about fights, for instance, mm. which I didn't want to write about fights either. But I remember there was one game. I, I'm sure you remember the, the you know opening night that one year uh, when Colt Nor you know knocked George Paros out yep. in a fight on on the first game of the season. Um, you know, I, I wrote it was horrifying. Like I was, you know, in the building, it was terrible. Like it was dead quiet. It was really scary. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to convey all that emotion that I felt in the building and, and that people felt watching it into my story and all of it got taken out, you know? And so like, it was really like just a straightforward Colton Orr knocked George Paris in a fight. Paris went to hospital, blah, 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 blah. So, but I learned a ton at the working for the NHL. I mean, first of all, on many levels. So first of all, working for the NHL allowed me to cover Stanley cup finals. I covered other teams for the first time. So I would travel to cover, you know, I, I did a lot of predators because, you know, PK Subban got traded while I was there. And so like, I had a relationship with PK. So they kept sending me to Nashville to cover the predators and him. And, um, you know, I went to the, I went to Sochi Olympics, which is the highlight of my career, Mm -hmm. uh, covered two Stanley cup finals for the first time, uh, did a lot, a lot of things and, and also learned, know how the nhl kind of works and how they think and and how and and sort of their side of, of issues like you know it was funny like working for the nhl when something would blow up and the nhl was getting criticized from all sides and like they're just getting bombarded with with hatred on social media it was interesting being inside the walls you know kind of like being somewhat privy to the pr discussion and like what's going on on that on that end of things um you know i wasn't deeply involved but i was On the periphery of that discussion, just because they wanted us to know, you know, as the editor of the French website, I had to know if, okay, if they're gonna make a press release, I need to get it translated into French so we can run it at the same time. And so so I get a little heads up on some of the news. And, and, you know, I just, uh, I gained a lot of respect for their end of the process. You know, I kind of always assumed the NHL was kind of flying by the seat of its pants, but it's actually a super well run organization. and, And I met a lot of great people there. Uh, you know, one cool thing was was, you know, I shared an office or I was in the same office as an NHL schedule maker, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Hatsi Petros, who's, who's based in Montreal. Um, and so getting to know him and, and learning about his job was really interesting and just the complications of it and everything. The guy the guy constantly had a headache. There was some team complaining about something. And, and it was just like so, you know, it was cool. Uh, the central registry office was in the Montreal office that I was in. So I got to know a lot of those people. Those are the behind the scenes heroes, uh, of the league, basically any CBA related question that any assistant GM or anyone, anyone in any front office has basically comes into that office. Mm. So, you know, every year on trade deadline day, we would have like, we would have half the office cut off. Like we would have half of it and they would have half of it and we weren't allowed in their half. I didn't actually care if they came in my half, but they never would because they were so busy. But it's, so it was cool. It was cool learning a lot of the inside stuff, uh, you know, how trade calls are made, stuff like that. You know, and whenever I had a CBA question, I would just literally walk over to the central registry and be like, hey, can you guys tell me blah, blah, And like off the top of their head, they're like, yeah, section this, this, this. You just go look at, go look this up. And so that was cool. I learned a lot and I met a lot of people. and it, But even uh, just as a writer, I, I've never that's when I became basically the writer I am now is, is during my, I was there for six years. And in those six years, I really went from being like a news reporter to more of a writer. And, you know, I'll always be grateful to them for that.
0: So without revealing all the state secrets, because I feel like this deserves a follow-up, how is the schedule created in the NHL?
1: (laughs) Well, You know, there's obviously what's cool is that in his office, there's the old board that they used to use. So it's this massive wooden board with all these color coded pegs and everything. And so that's what back in the day, that's how they did. Obviously, now they use computers. And so it's just this constantly shifting, evolving thing. Like, you know, I don't know how he does it, but like based on my conversations, there's just so many factors that go into it. You know, broadcasters are always talking to him you know, building managers in each of the 31 cities are talking to him about concerts that they have scheduled or other sports or whatever, you know. So he has to coordinate with, like, the NBA, uh, arena football in some of their markets, uh, you know, lacrosse in some of their markets, you know, ice capades, uh, you know, the circus coming into town, like, the circus trip the Blackhawks went on every year. They don't anymore. You know, stuff like that, Um, concerts, what have you. So many dates and And you have to make sure that every team plays in each city once and this and that. And so i don't I don't literally know how he does it, but talking to him is it's it's clear it's something I would never want to do. Because that's <laughs> not a job I would ever want. And he because he takes a lot of heat from a lot of people all the time, and he never makes everyone happy. There's always someone who's upset with him. And basically, I guess his only response is is, you know, I'm gonna have to try and get you back next year. Like, sorry sorry, you have 14 backs to backs this year. Next year, I'll try to make it nine, you know, a <laughs> kind of thing. Like it's, it's, he's in a bit of a no-win situation, but he's a really good guy. And he actually had he actually has the perfect temperament for that kid because he's pretty chill.
0: You've been in, you've been at the athletic now for over three years and I've had several athletic writers on this show and, and some of them who were there, you know, from the early days. And, and they just talk about how, exciting those early days were but also a little bit uncertain just because it's a startup and you don't know whether it's Mm going to succeed or not i'm i'm just curious what those early days were like for you arpon i mean being at the athletic and now seeing it grow and and really be etched into the the, the consciousness of sports journalism yeah
1: well it was exciting you know i mean i was i was one of the weird uh no i was one of the few people at that time, so we're talking about the summer of 2017. I was one of the few people to sign on with The Athletic who actually sort of left a job, you know, and like Mm -hmm. right around the same time, like Mike Russo came on board, Portsline came on board, Jeremy Rutherford came on board. We were all around the same time and all those guys left jobs as well. But um, prior to us, most of the guys The Athletic had hired had just been let go from their jobs. You know, I mean, you look at the first athletic office in Chicago. Uh, uh, you know, John Greenberg had been let go by ESPN. Scott Powers, same deal. And you know, they were the, they were the first city, and and the whole idea for the business was basically based on the fact that you know the industry is laying off all these people. There's a lot of talented people out there. Let's go get these talented people and let's let's get their their work out. Um, so, but for me. You know, I was working at the NHL, as I just described, I was very happy there. I had no reason to leave that job. I had a very secure I was never going to be fired like ever. Mm-hmm. And I had a very secured gig. If I had stayed there and retired there, I would have had a very comfortable pension. i would have been I would have led a very happy life. It would have been fine. Uh, and so the reason I left was kind of twofold. a, you know, I was brought in primarily to launch the French website, which I had done it was, you know, six years into that. At that point, it was basically running on its own, didn't really need me to function. Uh, and B, I, as a writer at the NHL, uh, you know, since my primary function was the French website, and then we hired all these writers, uh, you know, in the two years prior to me leaving, we our, our stable of writers went up from, you know, f- five or six to like 10 or 12, you know, it doubled, basically. So... I just saw myself getting lower and lower, like pushed lower and lower down that totem pole, you know, like I didn't see myself getting a lot of good opportunities just because there were so many writers and those people, their only job was to write. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had another primary job other than writing. So, so that combined with how excited they made me about the athletics business model and the thought of, launching something else again like launching the french website for the nhl was exciting to me i'd never done anything like that it was all consuming i worked really hard at it i had to work i worked like 70 hour weeks some some weeks it was really intense uh but it was really gratifying when when the site started to get some traction and people started to go to it and so i you know the thought of doing that for this company in montreal uh was very exciting to me and so the combination of Of me honestly you know getting a little bored with my job at the nhl and then these people just showing up at that moment with a very exciting opportunity um it was a risk it was risky and it was it was a little unnerving but um it was a risk i was willing to take and my wife was was on board with it as well which is really cool because it would have been easy for her to say we're going to keep the secure safe job and you're going to just you know shut up and take it like you just kind of deal with your boredom if you're bored uh, but she didn't do that. She was fully supportive. so it was uh it was a good. it was a good thing. it was a it was a big risk, but it's paid off. It's really so far so good, I'd say
0: no, it's I mean, it certainly has paid off. And I think one of the great things certainly about the NHL vertical at the athletic is that you have a, a real nice mix. I mean, you have the experienced writers like yourself and Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebron. but, you also have some of the younger writers like Haley Salvian or Scott Wheeler have really, you know, you know, ascended in, in mm-hmm. the sports media industry. So I think it's a, for, a, for a subscriber like me, you know, taking in all this content, I think it's really nice to have a real diversity in voices and, and, and experience in terms of, uh, you know, hockey coverage.
1: Yeah, that's what I like about it too, you know, and I love collaborating with all these people, um, you know, like all – I'll shoot Haley a question one day on on what's going on in Ottawa and then she'll shoot me some, you know, the other day they acquired Alice Galchenyuk and she shot me a note. She's like, what can you tell me about Alice Galchenyuk? You know, like this is a resource. Like most people in a newspaper don't have this option. You know, they have sources that they can call and be like, okay, what can you tell me? But there's no one in their company usually yeah. that you could just reach out to and be like, give me the 911 on, on or the 411 on this guy. And, and so uh, and we do, I do that all the time with with our writers around the network. And so it's a great, um, you know, support group's a little strong, but there's a strong network of support. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's as as a young writer coming into this industry, you have a lot of resources within the company itself where you can reach out and talk to someone and get some help and have a conversation about a situation that you're having trouble handling or a story that you're having trouble with. Uh, it's a really great environment for that. And it's... Um, and it's refreshing, you know, because newspapers are not newspaper, you know, newspa- newsrooms traditionally were competitive places, you know, the mm. reporters would compete, among, compete amongst themselves for prominence in the paper, who's going to get the page one story, who's going to get this, who's going to get this story, whatever there's, they're on the same team, but they're competing against each other. And you don't really have that so much at The Athletic, you know, I mean, there is probably a little bit of it in terms of national stories and stuff like that. But. Uh, by and large, we just want everyone to succeed locally where they're based. So you know, if if I don't know, just if Jeremy Rutherford in St. Louis is doing some story, he actually this is actually a good example. So Jeremy Rutherford had spoken to so many guys about this tailor in Montreal, hmm. uh, this guy who does suits for like half the NHL. He's <laughs> literally he's got he's got you know measurements for like coaches, players, everyone. And, you know, I had heard of the place, but, you know, I never thought of doing a story on it. Well, JR decided he's going to do a story on it. And so he, like, but he reached out to me. He's like, hey, listen, does it bother you if I do this story? You know, it's because it's in Montreal, but I'm going to be in Montreal soon. I wanted to do the story, do mine. I was like, no, I don't mind. I wasn't I wasn't thinking of doing it. I should have thought of doing it. Like, good for you for thinking of it, but I didn't, it's not a problem. And, and frankly, it was good for me because it went on our v- Montreal vertical like it, it, our Montreal readers got access to it because he wrote it it's not just for his St. Louis readers it goes on to our feed as well you know so it's like it's just a really collaborative cool environment that i think uh, is somewhat unprecedented in our media world the way that uh, you know our spirit of collaboration i think is far greater than a lot of other media outlets i would think
0: one of my favorite pieces that you wrote for the athletic was a feature that you wrote um a little over a year ago on brendan gallagher it's titled brendan gallagher spent a lifetime turning obstacles into opportunities and i think it's a great story to even look back on a year or so later given you know his impact on the montreal Canadiens in the stanley cup playoffs this year and I mean, you started the piece with you know, you know, you know NBC talking to a guy named Josh Nichols, who had been a teammate of Brendan's on their uh, Peewee team. So I'm just sort of curious if you could walk the listeners through your process of writing this story and why you decided to start the story with uh, your conversation with Josh. Uh, yeah, well,
1: so sometime around. want to say February or March of that year Uh, I sat down with Brendan and obviously I knew the draft was going to be in Vancouver that year so I'm like listen man I feel like I feel like no one's ever written sort of this your your story you know like really gotten down to it and written your story would you mind if I visited with you after the draft in Vancouver and if I stuck around and and talked to your family and talked to your friends and stuff like that He's like, yeah, sure. So, so that's the that's the starting point is that you need the player to be on board, you know. So as soon as you and he was actually and I asked him, like I would remind him like once a month, I'd be like, hey, Brendan, remember you told me that I could do that, and he, and at one point I was like, I think it was in like towards the end of the season, so in like late March, I'm like, okay, I need to book my hotels and stuff like now I need a firm commitment. So he's he said yes, and it worked out. So. So how this works? Like it's there's that story was actually really difficult to write because I had a lot a lot I had a lot of stuff that did not get into that story. Mm. Uh, So it began. My first interview for that story was with Vaughn Carpen, who was was the scout, the Canadian scout who discovered Brendan Gallagher. He was pretty much the only scout in the NHL. He actually not pretty much. He literally was the only scout in the NHL to take Brendan Gallagher out for a meal prior to the Mm. draft. Most every other scout spoke to him. But he was the only one who actually took the time to take him out. And so he was the first interview and that was a good starting off point uh, because on that same trip, I spoke to uh, the former GM of the Vancouver Giants who is now an agent who works for the agency that represents Brendan Gallagher. Um, He put me in touch with the Vancouver Giants owner who told me these other things, and then I went to a workout with Gallagher and, and, and met a whole bunch of the guys he works out with. That's where I met Josh Nichols, who told me this story about this ping-pong match. And mm-hmm. the ping-pong match story with the Hulk Hogan belt was, to me, what epitomized Brendan Gallagher. So with all the sea of information that I had gathered, because not only that, then after that, uh, I went to Kelowna for a charity softball game that Josh Georges runs where Carrie Price was not Shea Weber, but Brian Giunta was there. Who Von Karpin specifically mentioned as a guy who taught him to not underestimate undersized players. So it was perfect. Um, And, but that ping pong story, like sometimes when you get, you hear someone tells you a story or someone tells you a piece of information, and sometimes you just know it. Like you just know that's my lead. Like that's, that's, I'm gonna lead into this story with this. And, And so to have this story, where Brendan Gallagher a few days earlier, not years earlier, a few days earlier, got so angry that Josh beat him at ping pong that he offered to put this brand-new Hulk Hogan-signed WWE Championship belt on the line just so Josh would play him again because he couldn't stand losing to him. To me, it was just the essence of Brendan Gallagher. and So you want to you want to find something that is the essence of some guy. Like that's the whole point of that whole exercise. That's why I spent two weeks in BC was to try and get at the essence of the guy. And to me, after everything I'd heard and after everything everyone had spoken to that really boiled it down was that was him refusing to, to, to take a loss in ping pong.
0: No, that's like, that's awesome. And, 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 and I really liked that for, for two reasons is one is you really focused I certainly at the start of the story and even throughout the story on this ping pong match. I mean, when you write a feature on a guy, there's so many things you can focus on. But I really liked how you, you know, focus on this one, you know, really unique angle. And then took it from there to sort of explain who Brendan Gallagher was. And and also, too, and, and this is what, you know, younger journalists need to understand. Is that, like, this is a story that got published in September but you're thinking about this story earlier in the years and, and you're just, you know, sort of, you know, going through the year and, and figuring out different ways to gather the information. And then just before beginning to write the story. So it's, I just find that really interesting. It was just a really, uh, it was a really well-written piece and it just shows that, you know, sometimes stories take a long time to materialize. And I think
1: a really important part of that story that is important to mention to younger writers i think is um that story was made a thousand times better by my editor Mm. i had so much information that i wanted to get everything i had into the story and when you're when you work so hard reporting a story it's hard for you to let go of things that you got that you think is good but that just don't fit the story you know like and you need an outside voice to tell you that so that that story originally when i first wrote it it might have been 6000 words like it was really really long and we have an excellent editor at the athletic called mark wolleman he's uh he lives in louisiana but he's 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 excellent at at editing long features and deep dive features and and really crafting them into something better and with this he was just like okay man like no offense but i'm just going to strike through everything that I think can go. And he like, he struck through like almost half the story, like 40% of the story. I was like, no, what are you doing? (laughs) But, you know, he was right. Like, you know, and and, like we worked back and forth. Like there were some things that he struck out that I wanted to keep and so I did. And, but a lot of the most, I'd say 80% of the things that he wanted to cut out, he was right. They were completely unnecessary. Like they, they did not advance the story. And so, the point of a the point of writing a story is not to get everything that you reported into the story. It's to write a good story. Mm. So if that means leaving something out, so be it. and and then you have that in your back pocket. And you know what? Like when Gallagher signed his extension, I went back to that story and all the stuff that got cut out, <laughs> I used it to write another story mm. on his you know more than over a year later, oh, two years. oh yeah, over a year later. Um, I still managed to use that stuff. I was pretty gratifying. I was like, yes. finally i got my i got my stuff published you know that that got cut out of the original feature but it's an important lesson i think is that just because you've learned something through the reporting process doesn't mean it absolutely has to go into your story.
0: i want to end on something that you touched on a bit earlier and and that was you know standing out as one of the only non-white uh journalists in in the locker room And, and obviously this has been a year where you know conversations in hockey about diversity and inclusion have come to the Mm -hmm. forefront and 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 rightfully so certainly the bubble with with Matt Dumba and you're 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 one of the inclusion co-chairs are upon at the PWHA and I'm just curious I mean as we go through you know you know starting another season and whatnot I mean how do we how do we how do we keep this conversation continuing through 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 the media and whatnot, and how important is it for white meat members of the media to continue to amplify um, these voices? Yeah,
1: I think it, it it is important. It's important that you know, and we've seen just in the last week, you know, the you know the Florida Marlins hiring a woman to be their general manager, the Panthers hiring a black man to be their Mm -hmm. assistant general manager. I mean, these are, these are historic events, you know, that need to be uh, treated as such. And, uh, you know, we're seeing change, you know, uh, to me, you know, the NHL players, like the entire Western conference bubble standing together to do that press conference to state that they're not going to play for two days. That was historic, historic Mm -hmm. stuff. And, and it's, it's so Change is happening, but like from a media perspective, and this is kind of what our inclusion committee is trying to trying to determine is um you know, how do we fix that? How do we fix, you know, representation in the media? The jobs are jobs are so scarce, they're so minimal. Um and and really like as as an organization, the PHWA, like our only criteria for membership is that you have a full-time job covering hockey. Hmm. that is there's no other there's no other criteria necessary hmm. like you, it's it just that's what membership is 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 given based on that as long as you have a full-time job and it's covering professional hockey or the nhl um you remember you're hmm. in <laughs> that's it <laughs> however despite that um despite that relatively low bar for membership our membership is predominantly white male like I mean, yeah. it's 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 really a massive number um compared to all the other minorities like women people of color black people i mean it's just like it's such a small drop in the bucket mm. compared to the the white male so the conversations that we've started to have on this committee that i'm co-chairing with ryan clark who's my colleague at the athletic uh is 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 largely our starting point is to figure out like, why is this happening? Like, why, why is this the case? What, what is the, what is the issue at the point of like at the original point? Like, you know, why aren't, why aren't, why is no more diverse, you know, sample of people being hired for these jobs? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a lot of initiatives that we'd like to get off the ground relatively soon. We're just starting our work. Um, You know, I needed some time after the playoffs and everything to sort of, you know, recharge my batteries and everything. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've had a number of meetings. We have like some some different task forces working on different things, and, and really, our goal is to um, to a determine deter, determine why hiring tends to go towards white males, and b also provide resources to help train uh, you know BIPOC uh, BIPOC journalists mm-hmm. so that so that they can have the skills and 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 know how to crack the industry you know the one thing that we have as an association or as a pro- professional group is we have a lot of expertise we have a lot of people who know how to write we have a lot of people who have navigated the ins and outs of this industry for many many years so um you know our hope eventually once we get sort of properly is to start providing workshops for young reporters uh not unlike yourself but you know people around your age group who, who are looking to to break into the industry and hopefully to make that group more diverse so that you know after that maybe we can work with sports editors around the league where we'll have like this pool of 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 people that we've trained and say oh you have an opening well if we can make a couple of suggestions we have we have a few people here. That would be good for that opening kind of thing and sort of act as a go between you know jobs come up so we're really on the we're really starting we're really at the starting point of our work but I'm really excited about some of the ideas that we've had and some of the some of the initiatives that we're working on Uh, but just in a basic in basic terms that's basically kind of our goal at the end is would be to to work on those two issues, you know, the hiring issue, and also the supply of capable young uh, reporters.
0: Well, that sounds, I mean, that sounds amazing, Arpon And certainly, I mean, the conversations have, you know, haven't had this year, certainly identifying the problem, but now it's all about, you know, continuing that conversation and then, but then also Mm -hmm. ensuring that opportunities are available um, for, you know, people of color to, to be able to, you know, get, be in sports media. And, and this sort of leads into my last question, which is, you know, what I usually ask of, of the guests I have on the show, which is what's one piece of advice that, that, that you give right now to a young journalist looking to break into an industry where there are scarce opportunities and, and it just seems to be getting scarcer, uh, by the day.
1: uh well i yeah i mean one of the one piece of advice is what i gave you earlier was listen Mm. you know if you if you find yourself in an environment that you've always wanted to be in if you're in the toronto raptors dressing room or whatever whatever thing that you dream to do uh instead of trying to prove to everyone in the room how smart you are just sit back and listen a little bit and 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 try to learn from these people you know because they're you might think that you're better than them, but they have a lot of things, they know a lot of things that you're gonna need to know in order to succeed. But the main thing that I, I do suggest to people when they ask uh, is to write. And if, if if writing's your thing, then write. You know, you have, the beauty of this, of this era is, you know, on the one hand, it's so much more difficult to get a job in the media, but on the other hand, you have so many tools at your disposal to get your work out there. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, me writing my blog, like I, I did that on Blogspot, you know, like it was a blogger, like the old Blogspot site. It was so easy to set that up. I, it had no images, no nothing. It was literally a blog with just writing on it. And now, you know, with the tools available, you can show, you can edit video, you can do, you, there's so many things that you can do online to show how, how, how diverse of a skill set that you have and the more things that you can do well the more attractive you are to media companies like if you're someone who can who can speak well in a broadcast setting who can shoot video edit video write and and do all these things these are the th- these are the people companies are looking for Co- people who can do everything like especially television companies today they want someone who will go out shoot the story edit the story write their own script and then write an article for their website mm-hmm. so Right now, young reporters or young journalists can do that on their own. They can, their portfolio is this living, breathing, organic thing where they can actually go out and report on stories and have that stuff available, where all you have to do is give someone a link and then they have it's right there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your thing is broadcast, then practice broadcast. If your thing is writing, then write. Like, it's you'll never get better at it without doing it over and over and over again and making mistakes and, and correcting. And the other thing I would say is, especially as a writer, always read your own work, like mm. read it the next day or like a week later, even better, but like go back to it and read it and be like, okay, what could I have done better? How did I, okay, that wasn't as good as it should have been. That was really good. I really liked that. And so like, you can feel good about yourself, but always be reading your own work. And that's, at least that's what I do. And I always, I always find ways that I could have made that story better. So those are, you asked for one, I gave you three pieces of advice.
0: Fantastic. Well, listen, Arpan Basu, he's the editor in chief of the Athletic Montreal. Make sure to check out his work on the Athletic. Arpan, a really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on the We Sports Chronicles podcast.
1: All right, my pleasure, Lucas. Thanks very much.